0: Bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik.
1: Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. This is the Tuesday, December 14th podcast. In this week's podcast, we're going to talk about the landmark Build Back Better legislation. The House of Representatives passed in November and is now being considered by the Senate. The legislation includes more than $156 billion in housing and community development spending and more than $18 billion in affordable housing tax incentives. If signed into law, as currently written, the Build Back Better Act would represent the largest expansion of affordable housing, community development, and clean energy tax incentives and spending ever in a single piece of legislation. Today's podcast will focus on the housing provisions in the Build Back Better Act. Next week's podcast will focus on the $325 billion in clean energy tax incentive provisions of the bill. Now, if you're a developer, investor, syndicator, or anyone else involved in the affordable housing world today, this podcast is for you. We'll talk about key affordable housing provisions in the bill, and we'll address what you should be doing now to be ready if the Build Back Better Act becomes law. If you're interested in specific financial details of the legislation, I will provide a link in the show notes to a series of blog posts that dive into the specifics. Today, we're gonna to be looking at the main provisions that affect housing and steps you could be taking now. My two guests this week will provide insight on what the affordable housing provisions do and what you should be doing now to be ready. Now, the first guest is Peter Lawrence, Novograd's Director of Public Policy and Government Relations. No one is more plugged into the affordable housing policy world than Peter. Now, if you've attended our conferences or a regular listener of Tax Credit Tuesday, you've certainly seen or heard Peter share his expertise. At our recent conference in Las Vegas, Peter was the moderator for a panel that discussed the housing provisions of the Build Back Better Act. He's also a frequent guest of this podcast. My other guest is Dirk Wallace, my partner out of our Dover, Ohio office. Dirk leads Novogratix Long income Housing Tax Credit Working Group and co-leads Novogratix Neighborhood Homes Tax Credit Working Group. Dirk was on a podcast about that credit, the Neighborhood Homes Tax Credit, earlier this year in July, and today we're going to discuss its position as part of the Build Back Better Act. In today's podcast, we'll start with an overview of the Loan Composing Tax Credit provisions, then we'll discuss the Neighborhood Homes Tax Credit, and we're going to finish with some of the HUD funding provisions. Along the way, as I noted, we're going to discuss what you can do to prepare and strategize for these potentially game-changing provisions. We have a lot to cover. So if you're ready, let's get started. So Dirk and Peter, welcome back to Tax Tuesday.
0: Great, hey, thanks Mike.
2: Thanks Mike, always appreciate the opportunity.
1: No, we always appreciate you joining. I know our guests look forward to podcasts that have one or both of you as guests. So today it's a double benefit. <laughs> so we're gonna to start today's discussion, as I noted, with the long closing tax credit provisions in the Build Back Better Act. The legislation includes a significant increase in the annual allocation of the amount of 9% localistic tax credits. Peter, if you could explain the increase to our listeners and then focus on the Senate bill, since it is different slightly from the House bill.
2: Thank you, Mike. And certainly, the 9% allocation increase is something we have been pursuing for a few number of years, and we are making great progress in providing an increase to 9% allocations to address the incredible need for affordable rental housing out in the country. On November 19th, the House did pass the Build Back Better Act with a 9% allocation increase. And just over the past weekend, the Senate bill came out, which provides inflation increases based On assuming the twelve and a half percent allocation increase is continued, and in 2025, those amounts are increased forty percent over current law, and this is the amount from which we will be prepared to advocate future tax legislation to extend the policy. But as drafted in the Senate bill in 2026, the amounts drop down to back to the 2017 baseline as adjusted for inflation annually forward. And that is how that 9% allocation increase is structured. And we're modestly optimistic that this will remain the way it is considered as Congress deliberates on the bill.
1: Great, thank you for that, Peter. Now, there's another provision in the bill that many affordable housing stakeholders, ourselves included, have been pursuing for a while. And of course, I'm talking about lowering of the 50% finance by test for productivity bond finance, light to housing, lowering that 50% test from 50% to 25%. And this lowering would take effect next year in 2022. And it would expire after five years, noting that I guess the 4% credit in the Senate bill would be extended for four years and then this would be for five years. Is that right, Peter? Yep. Okay, thank you. Dirk, what are the implications of that change, of this lowering of the 50% test for developers and investors, and probably more importantly, uh, what are some of the things they should be doing now uh, in potential anticipation of this lowering?
0: As, as you mentioned, this could take effect in 2022. So that's you know, 16, 17 days away. <laughs> and so when looking at your you know, current pipeline of projects, I'm a numbers guy. I like to look at the numbers and you have to start thinking, how are states going to react to this? Are they going to limit bonds, bond issuance to, say, 30? 35% 40% I know some states now with the 50% test are limiting the amount that they will allocate uh, you know to one property. So if there is that that you know limitation would you need a bridge loan would you need uh, maybe taxable financing. We call it maybe a taxable tail on, on your taxes exempt financing. So there's a lot of things that could be, you know, moving parts in, in your development model now because uh, we're lowering this 50% test. Now, the good news is it could lower carrying costs. What if what if you didn't need 55% of taxes and bonds to finance your project? So lowering that, uh, maybe you don't have a gap and lowers interest, interest costs, issuance costs. It could, you know, make your project more financially feasible. So I think developers really do need to look at their current model, their current pipeline, and just see how that might impact uh, the numbers on their property.
1: Great. Thank you for that uh, overview. Yeah, there's definitely an expectation that there will be more bond transactions that will be financed because of the lowering of the finance by test. It would obviously take a bit of time for the various state allocating agencies to adopt to the lowering, as well as the market itself, dealing with the notion that perhaps instead of getting 55% of my cost financial tax bonds, if it's lower to say 30%, I'll have to have a taxable piece that I don't have to have now. Of course, that taxable piece may or may not have a much higher interest rate. But it definitely be something that they have to structure. We often think about taxable tails, but yeah, and those sort of structures. I'm not sure that's really a tail. <laughs> it's a large taxable second or a blended with the first. But that being said, when we look, you know, into 2022 and looking at the Senate bill, the supply of 9% credits wouldn't necessarily go up. It might even go down a little bit because of the loss of the disaster credits. But we do expect the supply of 4% tax credits to increase, and that increase could be dramatic. It's hard to know how much additional bond volume will get used, or the same amount of bond volume might get used, perhaps a little bit more just because other states are using more bond volume for housing. But the amount of housing financed by the existing bond volume will certainly be more. We just don't know how much more housing could be financed. But we do expect there to be an increase in uh, 4% percent long income tax credits. So of course one of the questions we're getting from clients all the time is what do we expect the effect to be on equity pricing. So before I ask you to address that challenging question, I do want to note that uh, just assume for the moment that interest rates stay the same. <laughs> assume for the moment that the marginal corporate tax rate does not go up. We right now we're not expecting the marginal corporate tax rate to go up. Uh, so with those two sort of core assumptions, if you could discuss some of the possible impact on equity pricing
0: yeah as as you mentioned supply being a big factor and looking at the current states you know it used to be maybe only four or five states were oversubscribed now it might be 20 states that are oversubscribed so you know that there definitely is a lot of competition now for for these tax exempt bond transactions so given that increase in supply, the assumptions that you laid out, it seems like there, we would see a, a drop in pricing. How dramatic that is, is anyone's guess. But you would just think with, with those various assumptions that you know, pricing would on, on certain properties.
1: I totally agree with you uh, on that. And I would also note that I think you could also see a bit of a spread between 9% or an expanded spread between 9% equity pricing and 4% equity pricing, such that 4% are a little bit less than 9%. That's a critical component. Uh, I also think it really be good for the equity market because it will lead to more investors coming in and can lead to a more robust and diverse equity market. And that's something that would be a, a nicer addition. Now let's talk about another provision in the bill. And that is a provision that provides a 50% basis boost for extremely low-income properties that are financed with low-income cash credits. Now, this 50% basis boost you know, would be a substitute for the 30% potential basis boost. But it also, there's a requirement in the bill, Senate bill that at least 8% of the per capita 9% credits be set aside for financing with extremely low-income units. So Dirk, if you could describe for our listeners what they should be thinking with respect to this provision. And then after that, Peter, I'd love for you to weigh in on how states will need to manage or can manage their credit caps to comply with this 8% uh, set aside. So Dirk?
0: I hate to keep saying, go back to the numbers, but I talk about what I know. Um, Really, as Mike pointed out, there's There's this 50% basis boost that's available for these extremely low-income units, but the rent that you can charge on that unit is 30% of the area median income. So now you can support less debt service, but yet you're getting this additional basis boost that could generate more equity. So I think this is really going to vary by where the property is located, what what the rents are, what debt service can you still support and what that trade-off is uh, between additional equity and the less debt service.
1: And just look at
0: your property and see how the numbers work out given those two variables.
1: And then Peter, before you weigh in, I'd also note that it, you talk about running the numbers and and you talk about what you should also talk about what developers ask you to do for That's them. Right. But I think it is interesting to think about you know, at a given transaction, and thinking I could go with the nine percent, and if I'm going to dig the vault area, maybe with thirty percent boost, I could potentially have some low income units and get the fifty percent boost, but have some of the limitations on my operating income. I also can be looking at it as a bond transaction, <laughs> and potentially with a lower fifty percent test. There'd be a lot more on the bond finance transactions, and even with the bond finance transactions, I could be thinking about. Do I want to use the 50% boost there? So there definitely seems like there'd be a lot more options to be running, mm-hmm. not only looking at it in terms of what the, from a financial feasibility perspective and the needs of the community, also assessing how the state's prioritizing each of those various options. So you can identify where you have the greatest chance of success in terms of accessing financing. So there's definitely more options there's more optionality, which is obvious, which is generally thinking generally a good thing, but it also does require more analysis. But Peter, turning away from developers for a moment, as I mentioned, I wonder if you could weigh in on the state allocating agencies and the burden it places on them to manage their credit caps.
2: Yes, this is a provision that has been a part of the Affordable Housing Credit Improvement Act, which has been the industry-supported legislation. But this idea of a set-aside cap was not part of that legislation, and it is relatively new. And I would say for the smallest states, the states getting the small state minimum allocations, it's going to be the toughest to thread the needle between ensuring that you at least have 8% of your allocations going for buildings that reserve at least 20% of their units for extremely low-income households. And those are just households that are earning either 30% of the area mean income or less, or the federal poverty line, whichever is greater. And that's going to be a real challenge. We did some analysis. Let me uh, actually interrupt
1: just a second, Peter. So the the 8% is the per capita amount that they have to set aside. But I didn't actually mention the cap. (laughs) So maybe you could talk about what the cap is so our listeners fully appreciate what it means to, quote, thread the needle.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that, Mike, to step back here. Under the the Senate bill, the states would have to set aside of their new authority at least 8% for buildings that reserve at least 20% of the units for extremely low-income households. But they could only get the boost on no more than 13% of their uh, 9% allocations. And so they wouldn't get the benefit of the boost beyond that 13%. So for small states, that, that, that needle, 5%, it can be really small. It's not very easy you're going to have, to have a get the perfect set of applications to be able to thread that needle we, did, we looked at the nine states that receive small state allocations and on average looking at their 2020 allocations of authority, you'd have to have between 17 and 27 units to thread that needle of having having at least the 17 to satisfy the set aside but no more than 27 percent or 27 units rather to not go over the cap. And I, I imagine a lot of the small states will have one deal could potentially be over that amount. And, and you might be having a trouble to get one deal that, that, that meets the set aside. That will be a challenge going forward for, for small states in particular.
1: Great. I'd also note there's also a cap on the maximum amount of bond finance transactions that can avail themselves of the 50%. Uh, And that'll create some challenges as well, maybe more challenges given the diverse number of allocatees oftentimes or allocators in a given state of private activity bonds. But more to come on that. One thing I noticed we haven't addressed yet is what we mean by extremely low income. So maybe you could describe, Peter, what an extremely low income unit what the income thresholds are?
2: The threshold for an extremely low income household under the bill would be uh, household earning no more than 30% of the area mean income, or the federal poverty line, whichever is greater in that uh, local jurisdiction.
1: Great, thank you for that. So uh, Derek, let's go back to the develop, those that are listed in their developers or working with developers. If I'm a developer listening to a podcast, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, what should I be doing now? <laughs> so I'm ready if and when this bill passes and these additional credits and basis boosts and funding options are available.
0: I would as most developers know, there's a lot that you know goes into an application. You have to have a market study supporting your property. And if you're making changes like hey, uh, I'm going to be renting to these 30% units now or 30% households instead of all 60. Uh, you could have changes to your unit mix. You have to you know, update market studies, update applications, update the numbers. <laughs> We've been talking about that a lot. So really, no, you don't want to wait until this passes to start doing that. And you should really be looking at If I want to take advantage of some of these new provisions, how can I, I guess, how how can I prepare now to then hit the ground running and be one of the first in line to to be able to utilize these set asides or the additional basis boost?
1: That's a great point about the market study. You would think that uh, if you're a developer now and you're in a given state that you wanna be a little bit more expansive with your market studies, given the various funding options, which could lead to different unit mixes. You need to have a better understanding as to the market absorption of your different uh, unit mixes. So I could definitely see more more market studies having a bit of optionality to them in terms of demonstrating support for different uh, unit mixes. Also, as we discussed, running numbers with different approaches So you can see under which scenarios, which financing scenarios is the project and development financially feasible. But I'd also layer in there that it's a time for developers and others to be working with their state allocating agencies, both on the bond side and the 9% side, because the states will have to be updating their allocation plans. uh, And you want to make sure that you're weighing in and helping the states uh, develop allocation plans that are best for the housing needs in their state. I don't know, Peter, if you had any other additional thoughts to share or we can move on.
2: No, I just I think that I want to encourage you to all reach out to a professional to start planning for 2022 because there's going to be a lot of changes and you want to be prepared for that The same old knocking
1: up. That's a great point. And there's a number of of traps for the unwary, which we can't go into in a lot of detail here that you want to make sure that you don't fall uh, victim to. So, Derek, we've discussed the key funding provisions dealing with the loan deposit tax credit, but there are two other provisions that we haven't discussed yet that aren't funding related. Uh, The first one I wanted to chat about is the writer first refusal, then we'll talk about qualified contracts. The bill includes changes to the uh, right of first refusal provision at the end of the compliance period for long-term housing tax credit properties. And the Senate bill contains changes that are both retroactive and that are prospective. But before we dive into the bill's proposed changes, I wonder if you could first give our listeners a brief overview of what the right of first refusal means in the context of the long-term housing tax credit.
0: Sure. So uh, currently, there is a right of first refusal that is available to certain nonprofit entities. And the, uh, the nonprofit entity could be able to exercise this right of first refusal for a purchase price of debt plus taxes. So the nonprofit entity would receive a bona fide offer. That offer could then trigger a right of first refusal. So it does operate as a right of first refusal and not necessarily as an option or anything else. And that's how it's currently written um, in the statute.
1: I would just emphasize the fact that it is a right of first refusal, not an option. And I would remind listeners, we've discussed this before on the podcast, that Back in the day when the right of first refusal was enacted, initial legislation would have called for a purchase option. And there was a sort of conscious choice to go from a purchase option to a right of first refusal. And they are distinct. There are a number of legal distinctions between the two. And we also have some discussion of that on our website uh, about the right of first refusal. But with with that as background, as I mentioned, one of the Build Back Better Act proposed revisions would amend the writer first refusal into a purchase option. And it would clarify that the option covers partnership assets and interests beyond merely the real property itself. It could include other partnership assets along with partnership interests, as well as the real property itself. And the proposal isn't Merely prospective, as I noted, there, it's both retroactive and prospective. The various changes, however, uh, this right of first refusal provision, that's in the Senate, currently in the Senate bill, is susceptible to certain Senate parliamentarian challenges. <laughs> Peter, if you could explain what the exposure is more broadly about these parliamentarian challenges or parliamentary challenges, and then uh, how that might apply to the rider, right first refusal right of first refusal provision?
2: So the Build Back Better Act is a budget reconciliation bill, which allows, if conforming with all the rules, the Senate to consider it uh, with just uh, a majority vote, 50 votes plus the vice president potentially breaking ties. And, but in order to, for that legislation to be considered, it must uh, comply with what's called the Byrd Rule and the key components of the bird rule for this provision is that, one, the provision has to have a budget impact. And it is our understanding that the Senate parliamentarian reviews all of the language for the proposal. So if there's some elements of the proposal that do not have a budget impact, they would be ruled out of order. And the elements that do might go on to the next step, which is an evaluation of even if a provision does have a revenue impact, is that revenue impact, quote unquote, merely incidental to an overall policy? And that is largely the judgment call of the Senate parliamentarian. They review the case, they've got you to hear the pros and cons of whether something should be included, and then they rule. And that process is happening as we speak and as we're recording uh, this podcast this week, and we hope to find out in the coming days how, what happens on uh, all of the provisions that are being reviewed by the, the Senate or Parliamentarian. But it is quite possible that either parts or all of the right first refusal proposal will be ruled out of order uh, because it doesn't comply with the bird rule.
1: And I would note that for those listening who also are familiar with Opportunity Zones, for Opportunity Zones... The original legislation that was introduced in the Senate back in 2017 did include reporting requirements for opportunity funds. However, <laughs> under the BIRD rule, those were ruled not to have a revenue impact. So, those reporting requirements were removed. And that's just an example of the application uh, of the BIRD rule. So, the Build Back Better Act also includes changes to the Qualified Contract provision. And as uh, many listeners know, the qualified contract provision is the price at which a state agency needs to find a buyer when a low-income housing tax credit property gets past its compliance period and the owner submits this qualified contract request uh, to the allocating agency. Now, I will note that a number of states, uh, as part of applying for tax credits, don't allow qualified contracts. So California, for instance, doesn't allow quality contracts. It's basically something that's in federal law and states can be more restrictive than federal law and not more expansive. That's a general rule with the administration of long-term tax credits. So many states don't allow quality contracts, but many states do. So the Build Back Better Act would eliminate this option, this qualified contract option or prospective basis, which basically means once you get past the end of the 15-year compliance period, you would continue affordable for at least a full uh, 30 years, maybe beyond with the income restrictions. But for existing properties, where at the end of the 15-year compliance period, there is this qualified contract option, the rule would be changed as well. The bill would change the purchase price for existing properties that when you're determining a quality contract price that you take into account the affordability restrictions and the restricted rents and income-qualified units. Currently, the determination of the purchase price doesn't take that into account for purposes of that calculation. Now, there's some concern that this provision could also be subject to the Bird rule. Peter, maybe you could explain that or maybe you're gonna say, Ditto. <laughs> uh,
2: essentially, that just to reiterate, elements of this—the prospective or the retroactive pieces—could be ruled, it's not having revenue impact, and therefore taken out, or the whole parts or the whole could be reviewed if it, those budget impacts are merely incidental. So, TBD.
1: Dirk, there is an effective date question here. So maybe you could weigh in on if there's listeners wondering what the effective date of such a change would be and the impact that could have on existing properties.
0: It's right. The effective date would be when the bill passes. So the question is, when is the bill going to pass? Um, is it going to be before year end or after year end? And that could impact whether or not uh, a developer or property would have the ability to submit an application for a qualified contract process. Normally, I'm looking through a lot of the agreements or a lot of the state uh, requirements. A developer is able to submit that ap- application on the first day following either the 14th year, or the 15th year, or the first day after the end of the extended use period. So that first day would be January 1st. So, you know, this is something where developments or developers may not be able to submit a qualified application process today, but they could submit this application. After the first of the year, if the bill gets pushed into January,
1: that's a, a, a pretty significant impact if the passage uh, enactment of the bill uh, gets delayed <clears throat> until next year. And I guess I would also note that both the rider first aspects of the rider first refusal provision in the Senate bill, and aspects of the qualified contract provision do you have issues that would lend themselves, if enacted as is, to future litigation <laughs> in terms of their the appropriateness of those provisions, the retroactivity aspect of them, federal takings issues, and the like. So certainly those provisions will, won't end litigation and certainly will lead to some additional litigation. But let's move on. There's one other loan for the tax credit provision that is also a funding provision, but I wanted to discuss it at the end here as a transition into next week's podcast, Mm on renewable energy investment credits. And this is a provision that would allow renewable energy investment tax credits, which generally means solar, to not reduce loan for the tax credit basis. And so that is a good... Part because right now there's a 50% basis adjustment that would lower the amount of long-term tax credits that you could claim on 50% of the cost of uh, a solar development. But there's also uh, the benefit that the Build Back Better proposal would give a 20% bonus for solar credit facilities that are placed on federally assisted housing, which would be particularly powerful for combining solar energy with housing tax credit properties the economics seem very strong if we're doing a bond transaction particularly. So maybe, Dirk, you could talk a little bit about the economics and the benefits of, you know, including with 9% versus uh, 4% versus maybe deciding I I shouldn't include it, though I don't think that's going to be an option very often. (laughs) Sure, yeah. When
0: looking at the amount of benefit that putting solar on a property could generate, Obviously, the first one is a 50% solar tax credit. So 50% of, of the cost you'll receive as a tax credit. The next is it's not reducing tech basis. So if you're doing a 4% transaction, you know that could cover maybe 40% of the cost. You can get 40% of a tax credit on cost of the solar as well. Uh, we also have bonus depreciation, which can be claimed on solar installations. That is considered five-year property. So you'll have bonus depreciation considerations to make, as well as if you're in a, a qualified census track or a difficult to develop area. You could receive 130% uh, basis boost on those costs as well. So when you add all that up, it makes it pretty attractive just from a pure cost and benefit you know, standpoint. But then you also look and say, I'm generating this solar electricity and is probably going to decrease my utilities, you know, that that I'm charging the tenants. So there could be that benefit there as well, where your utility allowances may decrease. And if your utility allowances decreased, you you may be able to increase the amount of net rent that you can collect on that unit. So there'll be a lot of consideration or a lot of things to consider. And I think they're all going to be mostly positive uh, when looking at whether or not you should put, uh, you know, solar on your tax credit property.
1: So, thank you for that, Dirk. It definitely for new construction and acquisition rehabs, preservation transactions. It definitely seems like every uh, developer, every project owner, we want to be assessing uh, whether or not to include uh, solar. And that's another aspect of the number running and analysis that will need to be done. Uh, But it's also not just existing, it's not just new developments in preservation at rehabs. There'll be a a large number of existing owners of affordable housing that'll look at this and say, if I get this 50% credit, the economics really make sense. The combination of the 50% credit uh, and the uh, bonus depreciation really makes sense to be layering this into affordable housing. So it's really an exciting provision. It could bring a lot of renewable energy to long income housing, and there's also a financial benefits requirement to ensure that some portion of the benefit does go directly to the tenant. So we're really excited about this new provision. So we've talked a lot about the long income housing tax credit and the additional tax incentive aspects of that. I did want to shift now to a new provision, the Neighborhood Homes Tax Credit. This new credit would be used to finance the construction and rehabilitation of owner-occupied homes in distressed uh, neighborhoods. Now, as I said earlier, Dirk was on a podcast uh, back in July about this credit. And I will share a link to that podcast in today's show notes for any listeners who may have missed it. So we're not gonna go into detail as to how it works. That's a great podcast to listen to for that. And I'll also note that Dirk is the the, the co-head of the Neighborhood Homes Tax Credit Working Group that we formed, and I'll ask you to talk about that in a moment, Dirk, but Peter, if I'm a developer or an investor who's interested in the Neighborhood Homes Tax Credit, uh, what should I be doing now? Beyond, beyond, of course, listening to that podcast from last July.
2: Indeed. One thing just quickly I want to point out is that due to budget constraints, the the amount of allocations have been reduced from the original conception. So there is That to consider. But the key thing is that before any allocations can happen, states are going to need to uh, write qualified allocation plans for their neighborhood homes allocations. So we anticipate uh, that most states will look to the long term housing tax credit staff, given their expertise in drafting qualified allocation plans even though they're doing it for rental housing as opposed to owner-occupied housing. I imagine they'll be the lead. They may be assisted by their colleagues in the state agencies that deal with home ownership programs. But they're going to need to write these things because not a single dollar can be claimed until states have their qualified uh, allocation plans drafted. And so they're going to be under the gun to get them out certainly, they all, I'm sure the Treasury and IRS will need to put out regulations as well. But there will be uh, a lot of attention and focus on how to draft these things. And we want to encourage, if you're a developer or investor, start reaching out to your state now. Start reaching out to those staff that have done qualified allocation plans on the rental side, and start talking to them what you think should be key components uh, of preferences. So that when those uh, plans are drafted, you can have your input reflected earlier rather than later. Definitely, you don't want to wait on that front at all.
1: Great. Thank you, Peter. And Derek, maybe you could talk about some of the work that Neighborhood Homes Tax Credit Working Group that you co-lead is doing. Sure. Absolutely. So the,
0: the working group, we do have a number of members, developers, investors, attorneys, and actually a number of state housing uh, finance agencies as well. So as Peter pointed out, the QAPs are going to be a, you know, a key part of how these credits are allocated. And the working group itself is also working uh, on a financial model to see how the credit would be could be structured, see how the, the benefits could flow uh, from the credit and then we're also putting ourselves in a position to be able to, you know, comment on regulations or even perhaps help draft regulations. Uh, feel free to please reach out if you want to be part of this working group. Again, being on the front end to be able to help kind of shape and mold the program is, or the tax incentive, is definitely better than sitting back and just seeing what happens. Feel free to reach out if you want to become a member.
1: Great, thank you, Derek. Now the the other big piece, I guess I should say the larger piece of the affordable housing funding and the Build That Better Act is for HUD. Uh, The legislation includes more than $156 billion for housing and community development. Uh, And I wanted to start with the largest component, which is $65 billion for public housing. So, Peter, if you could describe ways that public housing authorities might use that funding I think it's important because our listeners, if they're not public housing authorities, uh, many of our listeners do work with public housing authorities. So they'll want to know uh, about the funding and how the housing authorities might use the funding so they can help facilitate that use.
2: Great. Thanks. And if I can just also further those numbers in context a little bit, that $156 billion is almost three times the amount of funding that HUD gets annually. So this really is a quite a remarkable allocation of funding. And it's even more remarkable for the public housing capital funding. On a typical year, PHAs will get less than $3 billion in capital funding to address all their needs. And this legislation would provide 65, more than 30 times the amount. Now, I think the reason why is that public housing has suffered decades of of you know disinvestment not enough capital funding they've every year that less than 3 billion is not enough to meet the cruel needs that public housing agencies have and so this represents a once in a generation catch up opportunity for phas to get and, and there are the, the, the physical state in a lot of public housing properties is terrible and it needs uh, uh, a lot of investment. and we are ready to try to help PHAs make uh, the uh, best use of that. we see three main scenarios. You know One will be the old-fashioned way that some agencies, especially the smallest, PHAs, I imagine, will just simply take that capital funding and use it to fix up the properties and the one-time yeah. projects, and, and then return, return to the normal way of operating going forward, like using that, ca- catching up. But I imagine that many others will want to leverage those resources and to mix finance uh, properties, especially the larger Public housing agencies. Many already have used the rental assistance demonstration, and I imagine there'll be a, a lot more interest because a lot more potential rental assistance demonstration conversions are financially feasible with this uh, tremendous amount of public capital resources. And then there goes PHAs in between, which will be might be might fix up some properties in their portfolio the old-fashioned way and do some through mixed finance, and we're more than happy to advise you in either circumstance. Rich Larson is the partner who leads our work with public housing agencies and on red transactions. And I think really this, this will represent a tremendous opportunity that we're not likely to see again anytime soon. So we want to take advantage of that opportunity as much as possible.
1: So thank you for that, Peter. Now there are many other funding elements in the balance of the 156 billion, but I did want to focus on three others, namely $15 billion for the National Housing Trust Fund, $10 billion for home, and $750 million for the Housing Investment Fund, which is structured similar to the Capital Magnet Fund. If you could share what impact that'll have and how like public housing authorities or other affordable housing stakeholders, how they should be acting, what they should be expecting with respect to these funds, how they can use to further develop and preserve affordable housing.
2: Absolutely. And you can imagine that additional $15 billion in the housing trust fund would be matched up with that, the extremely low income basis boost we talked about earlier as being a powerful one to Punch and making those types of properties more financially feasible. We've looked at HUD's historical data on use, and the, the average amount of housing trust fund subsidy per unit is actually about $100,000, which would mean if those averages continue onwards that we'd have 150,000 units financed with that $15 million. Now, the average might change given everything else that's happening in the bill, but that's what historically has been used. And we imagine most of those housing trust fund units have been financed along with low-income housing tax credits. And we can imagine uh, a lot more, particularly 4% bond deals, having that set of resources Will make many of them, many more financial feasible, including RAD deals we just mentioned. You can see all those things come together there, being very powerful. Home is a little bit more flexible than the Housing Trust Fund, it can serve up to 90% of the area mean income, but it's very similar gap financing. And the Capital Mega Fund is which the housing investment fund is very much structured like given the requirement under the capital May fund to to leverage 10 to 1 that 750 million dollars ends up being having the the, the value of 7.5 billion dollars which could be really helpful and the so what unique nature of the capital may fund is that it goes Uh, on the entity level rather than the project level. So the the developer essentially controls the resource in their organization as opposed to within a particular property. And and, and that's why many of our clients really appreciate having that resource. And so definitely reach out to Novogratik on how best to make use of these potential resources.
1: So thank you for that, Peter. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the Senate is considering the bill, and we're in the middle of December. And I predict that the bill will pass this year or it won't. (laughs) So I don't think I can be wrong with that, but maybe some logic theoretician can share with me how that statement could be wrong. But given that it could uh, not pass this year and could potentially pass next year, maybe you could give our listeners your thoughts on what we should expect if the legislation doesn't pass before the end of the year and is pushed back into January.
2: So the bill is currently drafted, I think is anticipated to pass before the end of the year. That was the intent of Congress. And so the, the effective dates as currently drafted largely assume a January 1st effective date. And I think we'll all, if things do slip into next year, which with every day that passes and every day we get closer, that becomes a lot more likely, we're going to have to I think, work with Congress to re-examine those effective dates. And in some cases, it may make sense to keep them at January 1st because in terms of a practical application of the proposal, it makes sense to have it start then. But there may be other circumstances where we're going to need to adjust it. To, to given the fact that it, it will not be in, in this circumstance enacted by January 1st. And so I think that's something we're all going to our holiday season to do is we're all going to have to work with Congress on and we're going to try to make sure we maintain as much flexibility and you know, make it you know as practical as possible for those effective dates going forward.
1: Derek did you have any additional thoughts on... Uh, the potentiality of it getting pushed into January?
0: I just think big picture with if you have a tax exempt bond finance property that you might be close on your 50% test, you may consider moving that closing. Talk to your state agency uh, to see if it makes sense to move your closing to next year to where that 50% test could be lowered. But we talked about a lot today as far as various structure changes and things like that. So I would just encourage people to, to reach out. We can help analyze your pipeline. We can help with the various scenarios we talked today and help you update you know, your model to, to account for a lot of these changes that are coming.
1: Great. Thank you for that, Dirk. That's an excellent point about if you're close to the 50% test and the 50% test may be declining. Might want to wait a bit. Before we wrap up, I wanted each of you to share your email addresses so listeners can reach out to you if they want to. So I'll start with you, Peter.
2: Yes, my email address is my first name uh, dot last name. So Peter P-E-T-E-R dot Lawrence L A W R E N C E at N as in Nancy C is in Charlie Ellison Larry is and Larry P is and Peter dot com.
1: Great, thank you. And Dirk? A similar format, but
0: the dirk.wallace, D-I-R-K dot W-A-L-L-A-C-E at N-O-V-O-C-O com.
1: Excellent. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Dirk, for being a guest on Tasha Tuesday. I appreciate you sharing your insight. Please do stick around for our off mic section, which I'll get back to you in a moment. To our listeners, next week's episode of Tax Tuesday will continue our discussion of the $1.7 trillion Build Back Better Act, wherein we'll discuss renewable energy tax incentives. Peter will be returning as a guest, and he'll be joined by my renewable energy partner, Tony Grappone. Just like this week, we'll look at how listeners can best prepare for potential changes. You can make sure that you're notified of that episode and each week's episode by following or subscribing to the TaskRabbit Tuesday podcast. Go to www.novaco.com slash podcast to subscribe to and to stream the show on our website. You can also follow or subscribe to TaskRabbit Tuesday on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Radio Public. Now, I'm pleased to reach our off mic section, where listeners can get some off-topic advice and words of wisdom from our podcast guests. I'm interested in the answers from both of you. So we're going to start off with the first question for Peter, and then I'll have you uh, share your thoughts, Dirk. We're at the end of the year, and this is a time where many people evaluate how things have gone and set goals. Peter, do you have any process for evaluating your progress and how often do you do that?
2: And, Mike' it's the legislative and uh, regulatory process is highly variable. and but we are at a situation where uh-huh. we could have that historic legislation we just discussed. It's been uh, a, a great to see that progress on our legislative goals will be a great year for things to go according to plan. But I, you know, I think more importantly is that we need to be engaged at all times, because even when, we don't have things like the Build Back Better Act. There are really crucial decisions being made by federal policymakers, and we want to be at the table as those decisions are being made. So every year, I try to make sure that we've made concrete progress on advancing our ideas in terms of reaching out to the members of Congress And I track how many times we've reached out to the various offices and see if we've gotten supporters added to key legislation and various regulations and guidance released. Those are all key metrics that I I look to to see how we've done in a particular year. And and as I said, this year could be quite an amazing year.
1: It's definitely interesting in in the area where uh, you work and practice Because at some level, there's, you know, a lot of folks will use sort of an annual measuring period, but at some level, at the federal level, you have a two-year measuring period (laughs) as you work from Congress to Congress, even though obviously within Congress, you have sub-goals and the rest. But I'll turn the question to you, Dirk, and your thoughts.
0: This is probably going to surprise a lot of people, but I have a spreadsheet. <laughs> Who would have thought about that? <laughs> so, what kind of uh, started is one Excel spreadsheet is slowly morphed into. I think I'm up to 17 different tabs on that sheet. But yeah, I mean, there's some things both you know personally and professionally some I track on a weekly basis, some on a monthly basis, some on a quarterly basis. But yeah, there is a there's a file out there with my life on it. So there you go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you for that. And uh, maybe we'll go to you, Dirk, first with the uh, second of my uh, three questions. And that has to do with time management. Mm-hmm. And I always like collecting tips from my guests as to what their best time management tip is or second or third best. If in the event that you maybe have one that Peter was about to use <laughs> <laughs> or share. So do you want to share, If if not your best time management tip, a important time management tip? Yeah.
0: I mean, really, for me, it comes down to organization and some people on my team might laugh about me talking about organization, but I'm getting more organized and really I'm using pretty much any tools that I can find, whether it's creating tasks and outlook or, or the spreadsheet that I talked about. So yeah, it's, it's really just, I find that the more organized I can be then the more efficient I can be, and then I can you know manage a lot more things. If, if you know where things are and keep things organized.
1: Uh, Peter, please weigh in.
2: So you know, one thing I've discovered, Mike, is that given how uh, much a time suck email can be, I-, I try to make sure I spend time away from my email each day because I, f- I fear that if I don't set aside that time, email will expand like a gas fills to fill you know, a-, a room. And that I think is really important to keep on track with everything that has nothing to do with email. On track writing, for example, I feel like yeah. sometimes I need to take everything off my computer and just focus on the Word document right in front of me and, and get that the, the writing pieces done without distractions. Otherwise, it takes that much longer to get those pieces out.
1: No, I love that uh, concept about email because <clears throat> that's definitely true. If you can. Could- you could find yourself spending all day just responding to email. <laughs> so you definitely have to I, I do the same thing in terms of creating pockets of email time. So the third question that I wanted to ask each of you about is your thoughts on uh, habits and habits obviously, you know govern our lives. I also I, I like the the saying, make habit your friend <laughs> in the sense that habits can be, consciously form and have positive uh, influences in your life and other habits maybe not so much <laughs> but i'm curious what your thought what you do to try to create a new habit so maybe peter i can start with you
2: Oh well, yeah, you know, one thing i've been thinking a lot about and reflecting over the recent history is the pandemic did change a lot about our lives it almost forced us to make new habits, given the realities of having to cope with that. And I'm trying to take the good parts of what the pandemic has provided, and and as well as limit the the downsides. And part of that, I think, uh, is making sure that we get outside of our computer. And whether that means you, instead of sitting in your office all the time doing your work that you try to do things outside of the office as well and think about it maybe listen to a podcast as you go out for a walk there's a lot of things that i think you know the pandemic has forced us to reevaluate uh, how we structure our lives and i'm trying to t- take the the good parts of that sort of forced reflection as well as eliminate the the, the bad parts
1: <laughs> great thank you for that i like your focus on what how the pandemic has changed our lives. (laughs) And as we try to move beyond the pandemic, hopefully soon, that's a great idea to be thinking about which of those new habits do you want to keep (laughs) and which ones do you want to get back to. Dirk? I was going to say,
0: I assume we're talking about good habits here,
1: right? (laughs) (laughs) All right, beautiful bad bad ones.
0: (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah when i when i'm looking at uh creating a new habit it's mainly about routine and just putting it in your routine making sure that it you know stays in your routine like peter when we spend more time at home and you we always get that apple notification on sundays it tells you what your screen time is for the day or screen time <laughs> is for the week and you start looking at that and say saying maybe i should change a few things as i start to see that going up and up yeah so just kind of as peter said with the z-mail putting the screen time or putting the phone away I learning some screen time and just making that part of your routine and then just develops into a new habit.
1: Great. Thank you for that. Yeah, I do get those uh, notices on uh, Sunday and (laughs) it's always a good motivation for the uh, coming week. And I'd also just note for our listeners, I know there's a number of books and such that are out there dealing with uh, habits and how to make habit your friend and how to create habits. And some of them use what's known as the SMART system. You guys may have heard about it before with its an acronym for the S is for specific. The M in SMART is measurable. The A is achievable. The R is relevant. And the T is time bound. So it's SMART, specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time bound. Both of what you uh, both described uh, fit within the SMART system. So good for you. So with that, that'll end this week's uh, TaskRite Tuesday. Thank you, uh, Peter and Dirk. Thank you for joining for this bonus session here. And to our listeners, we look forward to chatting with you next week.
2: This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratic & Company LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novoco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novico.com forward slash podcast. Novogratic & Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide.
0: Learn more about our professional services at www.novico.com.